This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Naomi Schaefer-Riley is a former Wall Street Journal editor and a writer whose work focuses on higher education, philanthropy, religion, and culture. She is one of America's most prominent public intellectuals. Her writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the L.A. Times, and the Washington Post, among a host of other publications. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in English and government. Her latest book is published by Oxford University Press. Its title is Till Faith Do Us Part, How Interfaith Marriage is Transforming America. Naomi Schaefer-Riley, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. I so appreciate you talking to me. Naomi, your new book, Till Faith Do Us Part, How Interfaith Marriage is Transforming America, fills a void that I don't think anyone else has yet addressed. And in the book, you come to tell us quite naturally how you came to write this book. So why this book? Why now? Why you? Well, I think there are, uh, from the personal perspective, there are a couple of reasons that I decide to write this book. I am in uh, what someone might call an interfaith marriage. I think it's a, a faith-no-faith marriage. I'm a conservative Jew married to an ex-Jehovah's Witness, uh, and we're raising our children Jewish. Um, but I think more than that, what drove me to this is my decade and a half as a religion reporter. Um, I had obviously been very familiar with the debates within the Jewish community about interfaith marriage, and this is typically thought of actually as a Jewish issue. Uh, but I found in my reporting that a lot of other communities were uh, having these discussions. A lot of religious leaders were deeply concerned about the issue of interfaith marriage and how it was affecting both the strengths of marriage and the strengths of their religious communities. Um, why now? I think you know what you see now is a huge rise in the percentage of marriages that are interfaith, and I think it's important to really examine this trend, uh, you know, really as it's taking off. So you perceive the trend, but then you actually move to a quantitative study. You actually uh, were behind a, a pretty massive piece of sociological research into the realities of interfaith marriages in America today. Uh, let me ask you, you, you were working on the base of a perception, which you largely came uh, came to journalistically, but once you had looked at it scientifically in terms of the statistics and, and the data, were you surprised that interfaith marriage was actually happening even more than you had expected? Yes. I mean, I, I think that there really wasn't a lot of quantitative research in this area. I did a 2,500-person nationally representative survey on the subject of interfaith marriage, I found that the interfaith marriage rate in the United States is around 42 percent, um, and I was, I was really shocked by that number. I should say that that number includes mainline Protestants married to evangelicals, but it did not include a marriage within an evangelical or within a mainline community, even if it was across denominations, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think, you know, what I really found uh, most surprising was not even just the percentages, um, but I looked at some other important things. I looked at the likelihood of divorce, and I also looked at marital satisfaction rates. And there I think the numbers are particularly startling uh, for people. Um, I think, you know, when, when you look at uh, divorce overall, there was not a great deal of difference between same-faith and interfaith couples, but when you broke it out by particular religious groups, and I, and I know this will you know, interest your audience, um, there was a really big divide. So, for instance, um, evangelicals married to other evangelicals 
um, you know, they're about, uh, the likelihood of divorce is about 30%. An evangelical married to a non-evangelical, that likelihood rises to 50%. And for an evangelical married to someone of no religious affiliation, that number rises to over 60%. So you can see, you know, a clear trend there. And I found this also um, looking at rates of marital satisfaction. That's something that sociologists use to determine sort of how happy someone is in their marriage. And the biggest gap in marital satisfaction uh, was definitely for um, evangelicals and black Protestants married to someone of another faith. Um, so I think that these are really important things for, um, you know, religious communities, religious leaders, and, and, you know, families to keep in mind as they think about marriage. You put this entire issue in a context, especially within a narrative, uh, that uh, that I really hadn't thought so much about in, in terms of even the issue of uh, of tolerance and interfaith relations. Uh, you make the point that this uh, this rise of, of uh, interfaith marriages is, as you say, an important vehicle for assimilation and a, a major driver of religious tolerance. And, and I think you make that point most graphically when it comes to Jews who marry out, as you say, to use that expression. But before we go there, I want to ask you the definitional question, and you really did uh, speak to this just a moment ago, and you make it clear in your book to the extent that it's clear, and and that's the issue of definition. In other words, you said you count as an interfaith marriage when a liberal or mainline Protestant marries an evangelical. But within evangelicalism, you wouldn't suggest that an evangelical Presbyterian marrying an evangelical Baptist is interfaith. And, And I find this to be something that the secular media routinely confuses as if a, a Baptist marrying a Presbyterian or a Baptist marrying a Methodist is, is the same as, as, as a Baptist marrying a Muslim. They're right. just not the same thing. No, and they're definitely not. But I do think, and I think a lot of researchers working in the field of religion now seem to agree, that the world views uh, that between uh, the worldview differences between mainline Protestants and evangelical Protestants, that's sort of the big dividing line I see just as somebody who has uh, studied a lot of different Protestant churches. Um, and so I think, you know, it's important to draw the line there. That being said, I will tell your audience that even if you threw all the Protestants into one pot, uh, as, as it were, um, you would get an interfaith marriage rate in this country of 36%, which I still think is remarkably high, uh, you know, given what I think most, what most people think of as kind of like a, a minor phenomenon. Well, it is significantly higher, I think, than most of us would probably estimate, just uh, especially within the evangelical world, and for reasons uh, we'll talk about in just a moment. But you are writing, uh, as a Jewish writer, you identify yourself with conservative Judaism. And and when you look at this, I have to say, I I found it really a very interesting narrative, as well as the the data you you provide. In, In terms of what this means for the Jewish community, and I've had a conversation like this with Alan Dershowitz to the Harvard Law School who, you know, is a very active uh, participant in many of these conversations from the Jewish side. And he wrote the book, The Vanishing American Jew, in which he said that he felt that intermarriage, and, and by the way, I think that was after that 1999 study you actually cite here, that, uh, that, that Jewish intermarriage is going to be the end of Judaism. And, and by the time you finish the book, you find out that his own son has married out, as you say. And, and you're arguing that it really is becoming uh, so much so that, uh, that the greatest rates of intermarriage uh, the, or you might say the, the, the way that your book expresses it, the, the individual most likely to, uh, to intermarry is one who right now is with a Jewish identity. Yes. Um, so I, I looked at um, you know, a variety of religious communities. I found that Jews were the most likely to marry out, Mormons were the least likely, and Muslims, Catholics, and Protestants fell somewhere in the middle of that. 
Um, so yes, I think this is sort of you know the narrative in the Jewish community is very consistent with what you know Alan Dershowitz suggested. I mean, you do get these um, you know very high rates of interfaith marriage, and you know there was certainly um, a, a kind of alarm that was raised uh, after a 1990 Jewish population study about you know the likelihood that any of these um, people would be raising. Jewish children, um, let alone that, you know, they would have Jewish grandchildren, you know, thinking down the line. And obviously the Jewish community is in a particular situation here because there is sort of this demographic reality and ever-shrinking number of people in the in the community. Um, you know, that being said, I did try to sort of think, um, you know, constructively in the book, um, you know, both in my interviews and using the demographic information that I gathered in the survey about, you know, what what really matters in terms of, uh, you know, keeping people in the fold. Um, you know, and I think one of the most important conclusions uh, that I found was that a child is more than twice as likely to adopt the faith of their mother as the faith of their father. And, you know, this is something, obviously, that I think all religious traditions, you know, can keep in mind. Um, it seems to me that, uh, you know, Religion in America, you know, is, has um, in many ways become a very sort of women-run phenomenon. I mean, women are responsible for taking kids to Sunday school or Hebrew school. They're, they're more often to be, uh, like, they're more often found in the pews. Um, and um, they're often, you know, responsible for religious rituals that take place in the home. And so I think the combination of those phenomena sort of, you know, lead you to understand exactly why they have such a huge influence on the religious identity of the children. Um, so, you know, there are certain things that the Jewish community has undertaken. There are things called the Mother's Circle, um, where, uh, for instance, the non-Jewish women who have agreed to raise their children Jewish um, learn more about Jewish traditions, and there's a sense that there needs to be more buy-in from these women. Um, but I think the bigger question is really, you know, what attitude the Jewish community should take toward things like conversion. And, you know, this is something that I think comes a little more naturally, you know, to various Christian denominations or even to Muslims. You know, the, the question is, you know, uh, okay, so you want to marry someone of our faith. Would you be interested in joining our faith? Um, and, you know, Jews obviously for a long and, you know, important history, um, you know, have not engaged in that kind of proselytization. But, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm not the first person to observe that religion in America is kind of a marketplace. And, you know, maybe the Jewish community wants to think more seriously about sort of presenting itself, you know, as an option. Um, I mean, there's a lot of religion switching that goes on in this country. And so to the extent that the Jewish community is interested in, you know, preserving itself, you know, having people who are marrying a member of its community actually consider converting to Judaism itself might be a good thing. You know, there are several different lines of argument that are clear in your book and then some that were clear in my mind as I read your book. But uh, one of the lines that was very, very clear to me is that the change in marriage had to precede the change that would lead to these rates of interfaith marriage or interreligious marriage. For instance, the, the rise of romantic models of, uh, of human uh, marital relationships, so what the sociologists call companionate marriage or expressive mm -hmm. marriage. I mean, those things had to come first, didn't they? Because in an age of, of community and, uh, and clan-arranged marriages, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, this could right. only happen after marriage has changed. That's, I think there is a lot of truth to that. I mean, you, you used to have, um, you know, families, extended families and religious communities that had, even if they were not arranged marriages, they certainly had much more of a say over who an individual married. It was not, you know, a matter of finding your soulmate, as they say these days. 
Um, but I, I do think, you know, what you, you had these sort of two things happening at the same time. You did have this sort of breaking down of religious barriers that was just happening kind of as a result of, you know, more tolerance in America and kind of the, you know, advent of a, a lot of things that happened in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and, and religious tolerance was part of that trend. Um, but that being said, I do think, um, you know, that marriage, that the interfaith marriage rate has really, um, you know, accelerated that in many ways. And I talk in the book about, you know, some researchers that, research that other uh, academics have done. Um, they have found that if you marry someone of another faith, um, you know, you are more likely to like people of that faith. And um, what was interesting is, you know, it seems kind of logical, but that's actually not true in a lot of the world. Um, so America is kind of unique in this sense. But it's also um, the case that when you do that, you sort of take your family along with you. So suddenly, you know, maybe you haven't had an experience of actually having a real conversation with a Mormon before or a Muslim or something like that. And, and now you find yourself at family gatherings really engaged in, you know, personal conversations with them. And that can change your attitude toward the entire religious group. And it's, a, like I said, a vehicle for assimilation in that sense. Well, we're talking about marriage developing into an expressive uh, form of companionship and uh, and that transforming marriage such that people are looking for spouses in the way that three or four hundred years ago they wouldn't have been looking, and they're certainly looking elsewhere than they would have been looking. But something else had to change in American society. The, the walls and barriers that had stood between all these religious groups uh, have become far more porous than they were in the past. So explain what had to happen in the country whether it's the melting pot ideal, uh, which you actually reference in the book, or, or, or some other sociological, political uh, kind of demographic change that took place. How do we reach the point that uh, our religious identity, even as American citizens, uh, changed such that uh, there was a, a new openness to interfaith marriage? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, this is probably even more your area of expertise than mine, but certainly religious people have become somewhat less religious. They've become less committed to, for instance, particular denominations. Um, it has become less important to people that they attend church regularly. I'm talking on average here with regard to Americans. Um, you have the rise of, as they call it, the nuns, the people of no religious affiliation, um, and the other thing which I think it's important to recognize, and this is sort of more of a marriage question, but I think it also has to do with this secularization, um, is the age of marriage has risen. So, for instance, now uh, the average age of marriage, first marriage for women is over 27, and for men it's over 29. So the, the 20s, you know, the, the period after you leave your parents' home but before you get married, uh, has traditionally been a, a kind of religious downtime. People do not tend to attend religious services as regularly. They move around. This is what uh, researchers now call emerging adulthood, this period where you find different jobs and different friends and you date different people. Um, all of that has sort of loosened the institutional ties that people have. And then at the end of this sometimes 10-year period, young adults are finding their mates. And I'm not suggesting in the book that they're purposely misrepresenting themselves, but I think many of them are actually even underestimating yeah. how important religion may become for them later in life. I want to get to that in just a moment, but I, I want to linger on my second uh, line of, of, of argument here for just a moment, because I think mm -hmm. this, is, this, is, is, this is not so clear in your book. But uh, I think one of the sociological and demographic changes, the cultural changes, uh, has to do with the fact that young people of, uh, of the age looking for a spouse— 
are actually now in a situation that 100 years ago did not exist. They are in the presence of people who have young people the same age who, uh, who are of a different faith. And, and for instance, if, if you were to go to uh, the most prestigious universities in America, and you did, you went to Harvard, had you been at a Harvard 100 years ago, you wouldn't have been there on two counts uh, as, a woman, <laughs> as a woman and probably as a, as, as a Jewish person as well. Whereas now, that's just taken for granted. And, and, yeah. uh, and, and so if you were a 22-year-old Jewish uh, uh, young person uh, and, a, and there was a 22-year-old Catholic young person, the social contact you would have had 100 years ago would have been negligible, if at all. And, and now we just take it for granted that, that, uh, that it, that's commonplace every day, 24-7. Right, and I think you're right that if you compare it with a century ago, you certainly see higher rates of mobility around the country, and you also see uh, higher rates of education. But I do want to emphasize that, for instance, looking at my survey, um, the the rates of interfaith marriage actually um, did not change based on education, based on where in the country you are from, uh, based on income level. So I think, you know, that, that is your, your story is definitely true in the sense that if you look back 100 years ago, people led much more sheltered and religiously isolated lives. However, I think now I don't want to give people the impression that it's only the people sort of going off across the country to new exciting universities and running into people of other faiths um, that is responsible for this trend. You could stay in your hometown, uh, you know, wherever that may be, and still be very likely to marry outside your faith as well. Yeah, but I'm going to argue that that still is a new thing. Uh, you know, having grown up yeah, in, a, in, a, in a town in the South, my point of the university was simply an example. The, the reality yeah. is that uh, that I was the first generation of my family to go to high school with uh, yeah. with Catholics and Jews and uh, mm-hmm. and others, and I think that's a huge thing because I, my parents never had the opportunity to have friendships uh, that could have led to some kind of romantic attachment with someone. Absolutely, and uh, we're we you know we we marry the people that we work with, the people we go to school with, and the people that we participate in recreational activities with. So to the extent that we just simply have more contact with these people, that is a large part of what is driving this trend. You know, even at this point, I think it's really important for evangelicals to consider the fact that our children are growing up, and this is a good thing, in the presence of those who are not evangelical Christians. And it's not just in terms of many of their school contexts, but Little League Baseball and and, and other sporting events, uh, organized volunteer activities in the community. They're also part of a larger culture that has, for all kinds of good and necessary and laudable reasons, been assimilating in terms of racial and ethnic and linguistic and, yes, cultural and theological or faith issues as well. The identity of the people who live on our own neighborhood has become increasingly diverse, and that's a good thing. But we have to recognize that our own children, as they grow into adolescence and young adulthood, are in a context in which they're developing friendships and relationships with people from many different ethnicities and backgrounds and religious backgrounds as well. And it's a good thing for those friendships to develop. But, you know, Naomi Schaefer-Riley is exactly right when she says that our young people have to be armed with a very clear and articulated set of theological non-negotiables before they enter into romantic, not to say marital, relationships. If we do not arm our children with those very clear non-negotiables, the essential non-negotiable elements of the Christian faith, then they're not going to have the adequate understanding of why they should or should not develop a romantic relationship with someone else. And if that someone else is of a different faith, 
they're unsure exactly how they're to think about that. And as we well know, when a romantic relationship is established, all kinds of things could get confused. As her book makes clear, religion and theology are among the things that can get very, very rapidly confused in the romantic context. The third line uh, you already uh, mentioned very clearly, and that's uh, secularization, uh, and that's a theological shift. That's the way I would put it. There has to be a huge theological transformation in order for this to take place. And uh, to put it bluntly, uh, uh, exclusive theological claims would make it very difficult to enter into an interfaith relationship, much less marriage, and uh, and all the complexities that would then follow. So it, it certainly becomes clear to me as a theologian that what you have to have here is a rather massive secular shift in, in order to get to the place where you would have interfaith marriages at, at anything like this kind of rate because uh, there, there are just huge theological issues that are involved if you are indeed uh, deeply committed to the faith, and especially if you're an evangelical Christian, uh, believing in, in a gospel that makes very exclusive claims. And, uh, and, of course, the Roman Catholic Church did, at least until about the midpoint of the last century. So huge theological shifts had to take place for, for this to happen. No, I, I think that you're absolutely right. And and you, but I, I do have to say, even even in my interviews with younger evangelicals over the years, um, I think that that theological shift seems to be happening even while these young people still claim to be evangelicals. Um, so I, I agree with you that the shift has occurred. Um, you know, but but sometimes you do sort of get into the situation where there's a practical problem. I mean, as I said, women are much more likely to be in church uh, than men, and I have spoken with a number of young evangelical women over the years um, about the phenomenon of missionary dating, you know, the idea that you are going to, uh, you know, convince a non-believer over time uh, that they should come to the faith. Um, and I think this does lead to some very difficult problems. You know, I, I, um, I interview Lee Strobel for my book, uh, uh, the, the pastor who himself was at one point sort of in an interfaith marriage. Uh, he and his wife both started off on the secular end of things, and then his wife uh, became a Christian long before he did, and the sort of unevenness or the sort of unequally yokedness of their marriage. Um, and so, but I think, you know, a lot of young people are placed in a, in a difficult situation where they do uh, want to get married. Uh, and, and so sometimes, uh, you know, for better or worse, they will sort of sacrifice some of their religious principles or simply assume that this will all work out in the end. Um, you know, one of the other things that was very interesting that came up in a number of my interviews with religious leaders um, is the idea that, you know, young people are not, we don't, we don't talk to young people enough about prioritizing uh, religious faith when thinking about marriage. Um, as, as one pastor told me, you know, you have to know what your non-negotiables are. And there are many young people, even self-described evangelicals, who don't know what their non-negotiables are. Well, that gets to the fact that often religious identification is not highly theological in, in terms of its substance, and uh, that, that's clearly true uh, for many Muslim young people and Jewish young people and, and mainline Protestant young people, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, we have to say for many evangelical young people as well. By the way, the point you made here about the gender imbalance did strike me uh, very markedly, because this is something that I face repeatedly as I'm speaking to student groups on college and university mm-hmm. campuses and in churches, 
There are far more young evangelical women ready to marry than there are young evangelical men of approximately the same age ready to marry. And, and yeah. thus there is an imbalance, and, and you make that very clear, and, and I, I think uh, at least raised in my mind a whole new sympathy for some of those who are in, in the, this situation. I think missionary dating as a pastor, I have to say, I think missionary dating is a profoundly bad idea. But I do understand. Yeah. I do understand the the the, uh, the the dynamic out of which that kind of uh, that kind of idea would come. Right, and I don't mean to suggest that it's that I think it's a good idea. I mean, I think what has happened here, like I said, is you have these practical issues. But then what happens, and this is sort of where we started the conversation. On the other end of that, you know, once somebody does sort of get further and further involved in a relationship, you kind of have this sunk cost. You have this sense of, well, you know, we've already been dating for three years, and, you know, this is a big chunk of my sort of dating life, and the clock is ticking, and, you know, and uh, sure, you know, he hasn't fully embraced the faith yet, but, you know, he'll come around, and we should just go ahead and get married, and we'll all work out. And I think, you know, what happens, and I and I interviewed couples across the country um, in interfaith marriages, and even the happier ones will say that, you know, there is this element where they, they really didn't expect it to be as much of an issue as it was. And and this is something where I have a, a great deal of sympathy, because even I, as I got into my marriage, I said to my husband on our first date, talk about knowing your non-negotiables, um, that I wanted to raise my children Jewish, and was he okay with that? Now, this is something that most women would be um, hugely embarrassed to, to say, because it sort of implies you're some kind of lunatic who wants to talk about kids on the first date. Um, but But that was kind of my non-negotiable. And I think, you know, once I sort of thought I had won that argument. That is, he agreed, you know, readily, okay, we'll raise our children Jewish. Um, I kind of thought that was sort of going to be the end of, uh, at least to some extent, any tensions we would have over the issue. But in fact, you know, the tensions that arise in interfaith marriages are are constant, and, and sometimes they're very small. Um, you know, whose house should we go to for this holiday? Um, you know, should we pay for, you know, Jewish summer camp, or, or, you know, should we, do we have to go to church every week? I mean, these are the kind of things that I think come up day in and day out, and a lot of interfaith couples don't expect them to. Well, as someone who's very much in a, uh, a marriage of, uh, of one evangelical to another, I, I realize reading this book that, that my marriage and, and my family, we're, we're free of a lot of the tensions that you document in this book. And, and you do so quite sympathetically and movingly, by the way. But there is a great deal of heartbreak in this book. And, and I, I, I think that a lot of the heartbreak seems to come, as, as I read your book, when a couple that doesn't believe, uh, the two parties don't believe that their religious differences matter a great deal, and then at some point, and it, it tends to be, as you document, with the arrival of children, and as the children get older and are of the age of religious education, it really does begin to matter, and, and sometimes it matters with great hurt within this uh, interfaith marriage. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you sort of have three options, you know, as an interfaith couple, you know, sort of, you know, one of the people can convert and you can be on the same page. Um, you know, you can try, uh, uh, you know, raising the children as both, which is, by the way, a very unpopular option. I found that um, most interfaith couples are raising their children as one thing or the other. They, they at least felt the need to kind of make that decision. Um, or you can just sort of, uh, you know, leave religion altogether and sort of just, you know, make it a kind of secular home. And, and many, many people choose that option as well. Um, but I think that, that the heartbreak comes from, you know, both the tensions that arise. Like I said, there is this lower rate of marital satisfaction and a higher likelihood of divorce in certain combinations. Um, but the other thing I found is just some people said, you know, look, I, 
I really would like to pursue my faith. This is where I think, you know, God is leading me. But my family and the strength of my family and the unity of my family is more important to me at this point. And so I kind of have to, you know, tuck that under the bed and just forget about it for now to the extent that I can, because, um, you know, otherwise it will tear us apart. And I think, you know, to me, I think that's really the often the untold story here is the thwarting of people's own spiritual journeys uh, because they do want to, you know, I, I think um, rightly in many cases sort of preserve the family. You mentioned three different options there, but in the book, I think you actually mentioned a fourth. And, and, yeah. and the statistic that shocked me the most of any in your book comes on page 115, where you write, there's another option that some interfaith couples pursue when they want to join a religious community, but do not want to join one of the ones from which they hail. And uh, you went on and said, of the quarter of same faith couples for whom this was true, we found that in 19% of the cases, both husband and wife converted to a new religion. That's 19%, almost one out of five. I found that to be huge and, and frankly shocking. You know, one of the things that, that came up in my interviews was you had people who, who decided on these compromised faiths in some cases. I mean, um, not that the, uh, the Unitarian Church necessarily advertises itself as such anymore, but there are many Christian Jewish couples, for instance, who decide on a Unitarian Church because they somehow feel that this is in the middle. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't think a lot of Christian and Jewish leaders would agree with that statement, um, but you do have people who've decided, well, so, since we, we don't want either one of us to feel uncomfortable, um, we're kind of both going to feel uncomfortable. Um, and then you also have uh, this population of people who, uh, a smaller population than, than people who join the Unitarians, um, but people who join a kind of Messianic Jewish group. Um, and again, this is where some people, again, I don't know that they would always describe it as a compromise, um, but they would describe it as somehow a, a theology um, where they both feel comfortable in some way. Um, and then, you know, I, I think, you know, every once in a while you just have a couple where uh, they've both been exposed to a new faith and they both decide together, um, and this can even happen in same-faith couples, where they both decide together, let's try something new, and they've been welcomed into a new community, and that happens together as well. I think one of the most innovative issues you raise in your book is what you call the racialization of religion, because this, this just makes sense to me as I think about what's going on here. We live in a society that has, for all kinds of good and necessary reasons and is entirely to be celebrated, uh, come to understand that racial differences really don't matter and therefore that diversity ought to be not only received but received as a gift and, and actually worked toward. And, and you make the argument rather straightforwardly in the book that many people now see religion in just the same way, that it's a, it's a characteristic, like a racial characteristic, and, and, and thus there's almost an intentionality on the part of some people who think it's, it's simply the right thing to do to act as if theology and, and religious identity don't matter in terms of looking for a marital partner. Yeah, I've been actually fairly surprised at the language that people use to describe why they were open to dating someone of another faith. And many of them actually suggested that if you weren't open, you would be discriminating, uh, which sort of raises the point that we've lost the positive connotation to discriminating somewhere along the line. Um, but I think what, what has happened here is people have chalked up, uh, you know, any kind of religious differences and any, and any sort of choice that you would make, uh, you know, based on those religious differences to be somehow a sign of bigotry. And I think this is very surprising, and, and I, for one, think religious differences are substantive, and they're things that, you know, people have thought about, in many cases, significantly, and affect 
the way of, you know, the way we lead our lives. They affect, uh, you know, where we want to live, how we want to raise our kids, how we want to spend our money, how we want to spend our time. And these practical things, I, I don't think race really has those same kind of effects. And, and, I, and I think we need to really make clear to people that there should be, and there is an important distinction among religious groups, which is not to say, oh, you know, mine is better than yours. We're not having that argument. But, but that we need to sort of respect these differences, because if we simply ignore them and sweep them under the rug, these things, I think, come back to bite us later on. I want to ask you to look forward, because if I could suggest a second volume uh, to your work and your research here, <laughs> It would be a look into the lives of the children of these interfaith marriages. So as, as much as armed with the data you have here and with the thinking you've invested, what do you think those kids are going to think about marriage and interfaith relationships and, for that matter, religious identity on the other side of this very seismic change? Well, it's certainly true that people who are the products of interfaith marriages are also more likely to marry someone of another faith themselves. So you can sort of see how this demographic change will continue to snowball in the way that it has. So I think that these kids may choose secularization, uh, but they also may come to see religion as something that they can go back and forth in and out of. If you sort of see religion as something your mother can choose one of and your father can choose the other one of, uh, religion is not something that has a kind of exclusive claim anymore. And this is part of the idea that's responsible for a lot of the religion switching that goes on in this country. Um, but I think children of interfaith marriages will probably see religion as a choice much more than an obligation. One final thought I want to ask you, Naomi. When, when you're, you know you're speaking to a largely evangelical audience here, and, uh, and you document very well. Uh, the uh, the evangelical uh, uh, theological concerns, biblical concerns about interfaith marriage. Let me just ask you, as you look at us, are, are we messaging that very well, uh, even with our own young people? I think, oddly, it's being messaged less and less. I think the age of marriage for evangelicals is also going up, and as that happens, I think more and more religious leaders and parents are very reluctant to talk about marriage at a young age. But I think that is really what has to happen. As I, as I mentioned, the pastor who talked about the non-negotiables, those non-negotiables, you know, we need to start talking about those in a community that's worried about its interfaith marriage, uh, needs to start talking about those when kids are adolescents and not worry about this idea, oh, well, you know, marriage is so far into the future, we don't want to seem like we're pressuring them. I think this is something that kids need to start thinking about quite young. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Congratulations on your book. Have you been pleased with the reception uh, in the larger cultural world of, of your book and its argument? I have been. I've been actually a little surprised that I haven't gotten more interest among evangelicals in this issue. I mean, I, I had many discussions, as you can tell from the book, with Russell Moore and, and other people in this community who seem concerned about it. But when it came time, I mean, Christianity Today had a nice piece by me, uh, you know, just talking about this, this issue. But I had sort of hoped that religious communities would, you know, ask me to come speak and talk about, you know, what my research showed. Um, but I think it's still, many people still don't see this as an issue for Christians. Well, I do, and I deeply appreciate this conversation with you. I appreciate your book, and, and quite frankly, uh, your entire writing and research and, and, uh, and career and commentary and public engagement. I deeply appreciate the thoughtful way you engage all these issues, and thank you again for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you. I so appreciate you talking to me, too.
I really benefited by reading Naomi Schaefer Riley's new book, Till Faith Do Us Part, as she writes about how interfaith marriage is transforming America. And if I could summarize her book, I think what she's saying is that uh, the, the rise of interfaith marriage, certainly at these rates, is sociologically good and advantageous for the United States. It's often theologically bad for religious groups and their identity, and it's often very painful and complicated for the couples who are involved. Most of the secular reviewers of her book have pointed to the fact that uh, the book actually, as it points to something like marital reality, indicates that it's, it's more complicated than people often think as they get into an interfaith relationship, an interfaith marriage. For one thing, as Ms. Riley makes very clear, when the children get of an age within the marriage where religious education and religious habits and practices become very much an involvement, at that point, tensions may arise that never existed before. And, and she writes about, for instance, a, a Jewish man who married a non-Jewish wife, and his Jewish identity didn't mean much to him until he came to understand more about the Holocaust, and then all of a sudden it meant to him a very great deal, and that changed the relationship, but that wasn't the understanding when they got married. And, of course, it can go the other way as well. The statistical data in this book are absolutely fascinating. I mean, for instance, the fact that there is a huge determination made in terms of the religious identity of children by the religious identity of the mother, far more than of the father, in an interfaith relationship. Interestingly, new research is demonstrating that the father is very determinative when you have a mother and a father of the same faith in in terms of whether or not children stay in the faith throughout their lifetimes and raise then their children or the original couple's grandchildren in the same faith. So fathers and mothers are both important, but in an interfaith relationship, Naomi Schaefer-Riley demonstrates it's the mother's religious identity that in the vast majority of cases becomes uh, determinative insofar as either of the parents are determinative of the religious beliefs and understanding the identity of the children of that marriage. There are so many other things in here. For instance, one of the most interesting issues she addresses in the book is the distinction between Mormons and Jews in terms of interfaith marriage in America. Because as it turns out, they're religious groups of about the same size in terms of population. And as it turns out, they're at opposite extremes on the interfaith marriage issue where the Jews are the most likely to intermarry and the Mormons are the least likely to intermarry. And I think she's on to exactly the reason why when she says it's the age of marriage that is the big factor here. Because the age of first marriage for Mormons tends to be 22, whereas for Jews it tends to be 27. And the difference in the expectation of finding a spouse of the same faith is radically different for a 22-year-old than for a 27-year-old. So the delay of marriage greatly increases, and she documents this thoroughly, the uh, likelihood of an interfaith marriage. We talked about the fact that this means there's often an imbalance, because in so many faith traditions and so many religious groups, the women outnumber the men by such huge percentages, including in mainline Protestantism, for instance, and, uh, and in many older Catholic parishes, that it's virtually impossible for all the young women within those congregations and faith communities to find a spouse of of the same conviction and the same religious identity. Evangelicals had better be paying attention to that as well. Coming to the end of her book, Naomi Schaefer-Riley writes this, When you add up these cultural and religious attitudes, it's easy to see why interfaith marriage is growing by leaps and bounds. We like diversity. We believe members of other faiths are not only decent, but can get to heaven. We see marriage as a largely individual decision. We will meet our spouse and marry him or her with little forethought about his or her religious beliefs. When we find a potential partner, we believe the relationship between spouses will be an all-consuming one and that our families and communities do not have any kind of competing claims on our loyalties. 
We think religion is important, but it is for kids and parents, not for young single adults, end quote. Now, I think that's a brilliant paragraph. I disagree profoundly with some of what she's asserting there, but she's describing by means of that assertion the worldview and the cultural changes that have produced this vast increase in the number of interfaith marriages. But an evangelical listening to that particular paragraph, listening to that list of issues and criteria, would hear one perhaps more clearly or should hear one perhaps more clearly than any other. That's where she writes, We like diversity. We believe members of other faiths are not only decent but can get to heaven. That's a very interesting assertion. And that takes us right to the heart of the evangelical concern. After all, to be an evangelical is to love the gospel. And to love the gospel is to understand that we don't believe that all persons are going to heaven. We believe that heaven comes to all those who profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, and follow him. In other words, we do not believe, or we cannot believe, if we are consistently evangelical and truly biblical, that we can enter into an interfaith marriage without violating our very understanding of the gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians that they should not be unequally yoked. He puts it within the context of the relationship between the church and the world. And if you're looking for any empirical verification of why Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was so concerned about this, why he laid down such a very clear principle for Christians of not being yoked in marriage with someone of another faith, someone who is outside the gospel, just consider the statistics that Naomi Schaefer Riley shared. She said that among evangelicals married to other evangelicals, the divorce rate is somewhere around 30%. Amongst evangelicals who marry someone who is a believer of another faith tradition, that increases to about 40%. And she says if an evangelical marries someone of no religious identity, the anticipated divorce rate is nearly 50%. Now let's admit something. 30% is a scandal to the gospel and it's a tragedy. 40% is just that much worse and 50% is just unthinkably worse beyond that. And it tells us something that we already know. Theology matters. Worldview matters. It's not just about the raising of our children, but you know, that is a very interesting point for many of the conflicts to rise in an interfaith marriage, because it turns out that as children arrive, we really do have concerns about them and what they believe, because we really do know that it matters. Even those who aren't evangelical Christians, as it turns out, know that it matters, but evangelicals know that it matters at a whole new level, because we do believe that eternity is at stake. And we do believe, as a matter of fact, that the gospel requires that we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but also that we can only do that if we're married to someone of the same faith. Now, there are all kinds of pastoral issues that arise, and the skilled and convictional and sensitive pastor has to be aware of the fact that he is going to confront people who come to him and say, I'm a believer, I'm married to an unbeliever. That's going to be a pastoral challenge, and it's our responsibility to minister to that family, to minister to that couple, but to minister to that couple on the basis of the gospel. And we're going to have people come to us who are going to say, I intend to marry a person of a different faith. And that's the point in which our Christian conviction is going to have to be very clear that this is not only a pastoral challenge, this is a theological crisis. And it is a crisis that relates to the gospel. And not just to the gospel in terms of the unchristian spouse, the non-Christian spouse, but the gospel in terms of how the Christian, the church member, understands the gospel and not only in terms of what it means in terms of its implications, but what it means in terms of of its essence of salvation through the atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ, which comes to us by the gift of faith. When you look at Naomi Schaefer Riley's book, you find all kinds of material for good thought. And of course, there is evidence here of the great shift around us that we call secularization. The trend that she documents here so well could not have happened if theology had not been diminished within so many churches, denominations, religions, and faith communities to where it really doesn't matter. 
In other words, reading her book, there are people who have many kinds of religious identity who have so little theology, there's little conflict in terms of how they relate to one another or relate to someone of a different faith. But when it comes to Christian conviction, we have to understand that there is a clear biblical imperative, and we understand why. To understand the gospel is to understand Paul's concern and indeed his command as given to us by the Holy Spirit's inspiration as he was writing to the Corinthians, and by the Holy Spirit's inspiration as he was writing to us, the church throughout the ages. We also have to understand that as we're looking at this, we're operating in the midst of a culture in which our message is going to be increasingly countercultural when it comes to an openness to interfaith marriage. And as we look at this, we have to recognize that what Naomi Schaefer Riley calls the racialization of religion. Religion is just a personal marker, a personal identification. It's of no long-lasting or urgent significance. We have to understand that theologically, we can't accept that definition. We can understand how good it is that Americans have come to embrace diversity and pluralism on so many different grounds. But when it comes to worldview, and most importantly, when it comes to the gospel, we understand that there is not only a common sense that explains why Christians should marry and marry only other Christians, but why it is that that is a matter of the Holy Spirit's concern for the church and of Paul as an apostle laying down a command for the church. This is one of those things that puts us right back where we were in the first century in a world of religious pluralism in which it was necessary for Paul to write this to the church. And Naomi Schaefer Riley makes it very clear why it's necessary that we understand that text and obey it even now. Proof of the Bible's relevance and proof of the fact that, as we know, theology matters. Once again, many thanks to my guest, Naomi Schaefer Riley, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary the 14th and 15th of March for the renowned Youth Conference. This year, we're seeking to equip this generation's middle and high school-age students in order that they can engage our modern culture. I'll be joined by Sean McDowell, Dan DeWitt, and special musical guest, Flame. For more information, go to events.sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.